welcome to More Than Politics, a podcast for those of us who want something more than what we've come to expect from politics and from our political discourse. My name is Julie Varner Walsh. I'm your host. On today's episode, I'll be talking with my friend, Dr. Jill Scheibler, about the 2020 Democratic and Republican National Conventions. Jill is a community psychologist, a college professor and research coordinator, an art therapist, and the co-founder and operations and program director of the nonprofit Make Studio, which empowers artists with disabilities to grow as professionals with visibility and voice in their communities. Jill's applied work, teaching, and research have focused on community and individual well-being, public health and health equity, the inclusion of individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities, and the social impacts of arts programming. She received her BA in Anthropology and Art from Franklin and Marshall College, her MA in Art Therapy from the George Washington University, and her doctorate in Human Services Psychology from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Although not formally a student of political science, Curiosity and an early interest in presidential history has led Jill to pay an increasing amount of attention to news and politics since her college years. She is interested in how governments can be made to work the best for the most and has an affinity for underdogs. Politics watching is probably her main hobby, for better or worse. She is an avid daily reader of news, from local to international. She admits to enjoying the political horse race, but not at the expense of substance. And she knows all 50 states' U.S. senators by name, if not sight. Today, Jill identifies as a left-of-center, pragmatic, progressive Democrat. You might remember that at the end of last week's episode, I told you that I would be doing most of the talking on this week's episode, with just a little help from a friend or two. Well, That was before I sat down to talk with Jill. Once I did, I found that Jill was a great compliment to my amateur punditry. I sometimes think of myself as the kitchen sink pundit because political observations run especially easily through my head when my hands are busy doing the dishes. Indeed, Jill and I talked so long that I'm splitting our conversation into two parts. But I'll be releasing both this week so we don't get too far past the conventions. Today's episode covers our traditional expectations of political conventions, how those expectations, and the conventions themselves, had to adapt to the coronavirus pandemic, what each party needed to achieve with its convention, who its target audiences were, and what the convention said about where the parties are heading. This conversation was recorded on August 28th, the afternoon after the conclusion of the Republican National Convention. All right, Jill, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I wanted to start with just saying that Jill and I have been friends for a long time, if if remote for recent history, <laughs> but we went to high school together. And we have very different opinions when it comes to politics. <laughs> <laughs> we come from really different places, but... Jill is one of those people that I watch on Facebook and I really appreciate um, how much she pays attention to politics. I appreciate, you know, how seriously you take it. And 
I just always love people who are putting their money where their mouth is. Like you're willing to work for things and to um, put the time and effort into paying attention politically. You know, I think a lot of people just will sort of jot off some comments, but then they're sort of absent and you're really committed. And I think fair too. I mean, you come from a really particular political place, but I think you're really fair in how you assess politicians and you're willing to criticize people on both sides. And I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. I appreciate that. um, That is your perception for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Could you go ahead and give us a little background on yourself, especially when it comes to politics? Yeah, sure. So yeah. So I know you, Julie, from high school. And of course, you know, thinking about high school, it makes one feel quite old, but I'm (laughs) fairly comfortable with my current age. And that's, (laughs) we've both gotten into the (laughs) forties. That's right. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I would say back when I knew you, I was very interested or first knew you, I was very interested in issues. Um, But I wouldn't say that I was particularly politically minded or I hadn't really connected um, my interest in systems and policy and impacts on people and, you know, all of these related things. I I don't think I really thought of them as politics. Um, And somewhere along the way during college, I started to make some of those connections. And then particularly after college, during um, the George W. Bush presidency, all of these things sort of just to synthesize for me in terms of seeing through lines between, um, you know, legislation and, um, you know, happenings and the executive branch and, and, and just seeing the impacts on, on real life people. Um, and I think my, I've been interested in social science for a very long time, um, starting in high school. Um, and, um, ultimately, um, one of my majors in college was anthropology, but I did a lot of um, psychology coursework as well that have informed my um, my current career. Um, and so um, I've always been interested in human behavior and communication and how uh, change can happen. And, um, you know, I, I think just sort of seeing these things play out, particularly in that period of time um, when I was in my early 20s, when things also started to, in tandem, I think, become more volatile or more, mm-hmm. um, things became more heated um, in terms of how partisan politics seemed to be playing out. I remember, you know, growing up when I was very young in elementary school, um, I think we both went to Bakerfield Elementary School. Probably, probably. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I say probably. Yes, that's definitely where I went. I was thinking, yes, we probably went together. <laughs> I was just thinking of this because I listened to your your last episode of this podcast, uh-huh. and um, and you talked about um, being the campaign manager for the um, <laughs> the pseudo elementary school campaign for president. And um, I don't remember being that interested at that time because my parents yeah. weren't. They were they followed politics, but they didn't. They weren't really partisan per se. Um, I think mm-hmm. they they both were um, uh, independents um, and didn't affiliate with parties until later in my life. Um, but um, I remember just having this sort of sense during the Reagan presidency that Reagan is the president, and we're all and he's popular, and we're all excited about Reagan, and America's the best. And there was huh. that certain kind of cultural thing in the eighties that I think was really uh-huh. conducive to that. And so. There was a gradual process of just having more inputs and, 
you know, learning who the different players are and becoming more attuned to local politics and state level politics. And so that process just kind of, yeah, has sort of brought me to where I am today, I think, where um, I do tend to, I would, I would say I'm obsessed with politics. You know, it's just my, (laughs) it's just my like totally all consuming hobby. Um, And, and my, you know, my husband is, is similarly oriented too. So it's, you know, we kind of bounce off of each other. um, And that sort of um, enables me (laughs) to spend a lot more time thinking about it. uh, I think than a lot of my, uh, my friends do. (laughs) Um, and so, I mean, just to say, you you have you come from a much more liberal perspective than I am. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you could tell me about, like, sort of this year's race and like what candidates you were particularly excited about, or yeah. So I would say, so you know, we've talked about, or you've talked about on on your program, you know, um, sort of the differences um, or the discomforts around whether how strongly one affiliates as a partisan mm-hmm. um, and how comfortable that is depending on who your um, your candidates and your your leaders of your party are at any given time. Um, yeah. I would say that I'm fairly comfortable or have been for a while as being what I think I'm sort of a left of center Democrat, roughly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I personally think of myself as a progressive, but I think mm-hmm. that um, there are far leftier folks who would mm-hmm. call me a, a neoliberal <laughs> in some <laughs> regards. Uh, the terms get tossed around, um, but you know, I would say that I am. Yeah, I, I progress. I think I'm more progressive on certain issues than others, and so I'm. I think really progressive in the areas of the environment, um, around um, uh, issues, uh, social supports related to healthcare and childcare and um, family care. Um, I'm probably, you know, as, as you know, the differences between mm-hmm. us, um, yeah. very pro-choice. Um, right. And I, I would say in terms of this last race, um, I was leaning more towards some of the candidates who would be considered more progressive, but mm-hmm. not, I'm not, I've never been a fan of Bernie Sanders for various yeah. reasons. And so my favorite candidates really were um, Julian Castro and Elizabeth Warren. Um, I've liked Kamala Harris um, at times, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm pleased with her as the, the VP choice now. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. Bi- Biden, Joe Biden was someone who was very much on my lower rung. Um, yeah. I was not anti-Biden, but I was never excited about him. Um, right. And so, um, you know, I've, I've had a evolution there in terms of like a lot of folks have who just want to, you know, defeat Trump yeah, <laughs> on, yeah. on my side of the aisle. So, yeah, I think of you as a as a, like a pragmatic liberal. Like I think, yeah, I think that um, makes sense. we all have our own sort of policy preferences and everything, but then we also have our own sort of comfort levels as to how much, how practical we want to be as far as what, um, what things will give our preferred candidate the electoral advantage. And to me, you seem to be someone who you definitely have things that are dear to you, but you are also practical about knowing what is possible and, and wanting to achieve the best effect possible. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very true. I, I think that's been my sort of the way I've grown in terms of thinking of myself as a political person has been in tandem with my my professional career. And um, I'm a researcher and um, specialized in program evaluation. So thinking about how, um, you know, 
how the sausage gets made is very interesting, mm-hmm. interesting mm-hmm. to me. And I'm interested in the things that work ultimately and things that work often are things that incrementally have to happen and you have to bring people along with you and um, not, uh, yeah, it's not politically pragmatic to think that you're going to force people to your, you know, your way of thinking about, you know, any issue. Right. And you're never going to get everything you want. So I think anybody who is going to try to work in politics, even if in an amateur way, you have to realize you're not going to get everything you want. And there has to be some level of practicality and compromise. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, on to the conventions. Um, (laughs) First of all, I just want to note that, of course, we're used to conventions that are held in person in a big arena or something with thousands of people and a really sometimes even raucous environment, people from all over the country, people with different candidate preferences. And this year was really different because of COVID. (laughs) So, um, you know, it's interesting for years, I have been hearing pundits sort of grumble about the conventions and how they're so predictable these days. You know, it used to be that um, sometimes the candidate was chosen at the convention. You know, there were uh, real back and forth between different factions. So you could get to the convention and have a couple of pretty viable candidates. And it was like a lot of the backroom dealing mm-hmm. that that helped you land on somebody. So it's been quite a while since we've had any conventions like that. But um, even so, you know, there's still some measure of unpredictability. And, you know, if you look in 2016, there was a big question about, you know, the Bernie supporters at the mm-hmm. Democratic convention and Hey, we had Ted Cruz's speech at the Republican convention, which <laughs> I almost which, forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, that was kind of a surprise and you had mm-hmm. some tension in the room. And so at any rate, you've had political people and pundits for years saying that the conventions had just become so, they had been so well scripted that there weren't many surprises and that maybe we needed to be doing this in a different way. And so it was interesting with everything that's happened with the pandemic and both parties were forced to do it in a different way. I think in a sense, they saw it as an experiment, like, okay, we've been talking about changing our conventions for a long time. We have to now, let's see what works. And so I was very curious to see how the conventions would go and what they would do differently and how they would come across. And I was kind of eager to see the result of the experiment. Um, And I think it's funny because as much as I've heard all these years, these pundits complain about how predictable the conventions are, they complained even more that it was, (laughs) that it was remote. (laughs) Like um, I felt like a lot of the pundits didn't like the conventions Mm -hmm. because they're used to being there in person and it was way less exciting and interesting to watch on TV. (laughs) (laughs) But I think for the regular person who's watching it, it's a different story because you're not used to the excitement of being there in person. So how did you think that aspect of it went? Yeah, that's it. I was, I was also very intrigued and curious to see what they would do. And also thinking about where the two parties are with their candidates right now and the way Mm -hmm. that they have been dealing with campaigning in very Mm -hmm. different ways heading into it. I knew that they would have different approaches to acknowledging what's going on and, the changes that were necessitated by that. But I, um, and so I was interested to see what the differences would be, but I was also surprised to how different they handled that. Yeah, um, in execution. me too. Um, and so, yeah, I think, 
I do, you know, as a political obsessive, I do follow a lot of the punditry. And as you said, I think there was this sort of like, you know, oh, we're missing out on the on the floor action, all the parties and the, you know, the behind the scenes chatter. But then at the same time, they like, like, like to have that sort of like that droll sort of like, oh, but it's so boring and long anyway. And, you know, (laughs) and now they're like having to reduce it to a couple hours in the evening. This is better, I guess. And there was all that chatter (laughs) that was interesting. And so as someone who is very interested in politics, and I really like the, I'm a big nerd, of course, too. And so I really like the sort of parliamentary procedure stuff. Yeah. So in 2016, even though, you know, I was pretty solidly in the Hillary Clinton camp and not really into Bernie. So I didn't really want the disruption, but I still, there's something exciting about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And <laughs> I, so I was kind of like expecting to be missing some of these things. Um, and then was just very interested to see that, you know, the, the nice sort of more efficient package, particularly of, I think the, the democratic um, convention, because I they, mm-hmm. they stayed really in, in their two hours a night. There was, I think there was three, but then there was the two that all the networks broadcast or most of the networks okay. broadcast. All right. And the Republican convention felt like it went a little longer. Um, I think they did, not much longer. You know, the pacing was different. So right. that affected things. But yeah, um, I was more impressed with both than I expected to be. Yeah. So I thought, you know, I figured the Democrats were going to do a really tight job. I just figured, you know, like, oh, come on. I mean, they've got all of Hollywood. Like, <laughs> <laughs> they're going to have a lot of uh, a lot of really talented people who can put this thing together and it's going to be good. And I thought it was like I thought mm-hmm. they did a nice job with um kind of switching between like a regular person talking from their home, feeling approachable to a famous politician in a more impressive setting, um, to a musical performance, to a like, um, I thought it was interesting that they had Mm -hmm. those, I don't know what you'd call them, but like little small group sessions. Yeah. They were almost like little round tables or focus groups. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I thought that was interesting. I just thought they, I thought they handled it all really well. I thought it flowed nicely. I thought I liked that the speeches to me seemed shorter than they mm. might have been in I think person. They were usually, yeah, than they are usually, yeah. Yeah. So I just thought it was tight. I thought it was good. I thought that they were pretty deliberate about, like, pretty deliberate about their messaging and choosing speakers that would complement each other and topics that would. Um, so I thought that was. I thought they did a really good job. Um, I as as a um as a someone who still has at least some attachment to the Republican <laughs> Party, I was nervous about what the yeah. Republicans would do because I um that you know they hadn't been planning this remote situation as long mm-hmm. as the Democrats had because they were still talking about doing a lot of it in person. So I was like, oh man, they haven't had as long to prepare. What are they gonna do? Maybe they're not generally as good at this as the Democrats are. But I thought they went with a format that was very appealing. And um, it was just kind of interesting, I thought, to have two models that both did a good yeah. job of what they were aiming to do. Mm-hmm. I thought the 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 setting where the, most of the Republican speakers were speaking from was very impressive. The um, uh, theater, or I can't remember exactly what it was, in D.C. Um, that was very impressive. It I think came it was at the Lincoln well. Monument. 
most no, of the it wasn't. wasn't it was at um no i looked it up it was at um oh goodness i can't remember <laughs> it's a place it's um it's like in the federal triangle oh yes 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 yeah um, so uh, i think it's an auditorium mm-hmm. but it might have been i don't know whether they did it inside or outside the auditorium it was almost hard to tell from the setup so at any rate i thought yeah, that was all had that kind annoying. of yeah feeling that very like grand sort of Washington DC movie mm-hmm. kind of feel. I thought that was appealing. And um I I don't as someone who really cares about institutions and norms, I was not pleased with how much the White House was used. Yeah. However, I do I do concede that it was appealing, like visually appealing and probably appealed to people who are not as concerned about norms as myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would, I would agree with that. I think that was something that um, that's kind of been a, a thread through some of the punditry. Mm-hmm. Um, like thinking, looking back at it today. Um, and then, um, you know, and I, and I think that's like taking the sort of view of on the one hand, um, thinking of the setting as helping them with their storytelling and mm-hmm. being something right. that's going to be emotionally gripping like that. Um, and then on the other hand, it is that piece of, well, now that the horse is out of the barn with this norm, that gives right. the incumbent that potential advantage if they, the next person were to, to do that again. Um, and do we really want that to be, um, yeah, something right. that folks think is available to them. So yeah, that was the sort of like a nagging undercurrent <laughs> for right. sure, is knowing that it's probably effective with a certain subset of voters and kudos to them for the production value. But yeah, being conter- concerned about what the long-term implications right. are of that. Yeah. Um, I totally and, agree with the, it. like in both cases, different approaches, but the ability to pull off um, the technical aspects right. was not something I expected. Like I think with the DNC, they were maybe because they were kind of bouncing around different styles a little bit more. Mm-hmm. There were a couple places where there were some funny little things where someone came on live. It, you sure. Know, yeah. You know, but that happens with live television right. regardless, you know, right. um, yeah. but both had, yeah, fairly tight, you know, storytelling. Yeah. I, yeah I was just, I was more impressed with the Republican conventions um, production value than I expected to be. Yeah. And I found the Democrats format more compelling than I expected it to be. So I was right. just pleasantly surprised on both counts. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would agree with that. My expectations, well, I don't know if I had any, um, except to be sort of like, I don't know, um, <laughs> prepared to, prepared to be, you know, swayed in the way I would expect or not, um, yeah. given the, you know, the speakers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I kept thinking about as I was watching the conventions is what does each party have to achieve in this convention? You know, I think the number of people who watch conventions is pretty small Mm -hmm. and you are for the most part trying to excite your base. You're trying to Mm -hmm. get people to go out and vote, to get their friends to go out and vote, to make donations. So that's a big part of it. Um, you are also trying to get people who are on the fence, the sort of maybe rare person who might have tuned in because they don't know what the heck they're doing. So it was kind of interesting to me to see, you could tell by the conventions who the party's target audiences are. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 
I don't know what you thought, but I, I thought at the Democratic convention, there were, um, there were really three groups that they were trying to reach out to. One, they were trying to solidify their base, like the Democratic base for election after election. Two, they were trying to appease the left side of the party, I think, because here you have Biden, who is considered more of a centrist. And I think there was a lot of like, okay, let's let's make some nods in that direction so that the left side of our party knows we're thinking about them, too. Um, but then on the other hand, on the flip side of that, there was a whole lot of reaching out to the right, to Republicans, with all the Republican speakers they featured, and featuring farmers, and a lot of, you know, people that would be very um, sympathetic, uh, sympathetic from the perspective of, of a more conservative person. So I thought that was really interesting. I'm not sure I remember a Democratic convention where they tried as hard as they did to reach out to Republicans. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think I think those three groups are um, essentially the three that I would also identify. Um, I think there is that sort of baked in piece where your average Democratic voter this year is so much wanting for Trump just to defeat Trump mm-hmm. that I think they wanted to sort of give a little bit of a just an enthusiasm boost to those folks, but then a lot of the um, a lot of the airtime was then really divvied up between like let's make sure that the left the left or leaning folks feel appeased and comfortable, mm-hmm. um, and that the uh, you know we can bring in these disaffected Republicans or these independents who would ordinarily um, vote Republican, and I think there was some tension to that which was interesting to see sort of play out in real time and also in the Twitterverse, of course, where these things get, you know, broken down to death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, for me as someone who I personally think I lean a little left, but I'm mm-hmm. a solidly Democratic voter. Um, for me, it felt a little bit interesting night by night to have that I'm a Republican, I'm a Republican mm-hmm. piece every night. And so for me, I could have used a little less of it because yeah. it's still a little I was bit like, what you thought of this it. is Do our party, think- it's our house, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, we don't need to um, do quite as much of this because they actually had this yeah. one piece where there were these um, uh, Republicans, like a- everyday Republicans that uh-huh. they, they would state their discomfort with Trump and that they were going to yeah. vote for Biden. And they replayed that a couple of times. And it was sort of like, you don't have to replay the same video. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was, I was really this. wondering what Democrats were thinking about this. Yeah. I thought, or I bet, I bet there are some people who are pretty annoyed at that. Yeah. And I think, I think uh, my, my read on it from, you know, more left. But left I thought it was really smart. Of them. Yeah. I was going to say like the more left folks than I am, um, we're particularly um, cranky about, um, oh, uh, why am I forgetting his name all of a sudden? Kasich? Kasich, yes. Yeah. We're particularly cranky about Kasich. Um, and I'm not as a huge fan of his, but um, I, I saw the value in having him and the other high profile folks. Um, but I think for me, I was more compelled by the sort of reassurance from the national security side of the house mm-hmm. and the foreign relations side of the house that 
um, they had speakers to represent that point of view to say, mm-hmm. you know, we think that Biden is the person who can steer mm-hmm. the ship safely in an international mm-hmm. context. Because mm-hmm. I think that has sort of like an embedded message that appeals to people who are more conservative. But yeah, absolutely. It's in sort of like as in your too. face um, with like, you know, say like Kasich's known for being up, you know, um, uh, for, for a lot of progressives, you know, there's a lot of things he's done that people are very unhappy with. So mm-hmm. he was you know, not everyone's favorite choice for that role. But at the same time, I do. I think it was important that they they addressed um, that potential voting block. So it didn't yeah. bother me overall. Yeah. Yeah. I heard somebody say a little while ago that Biden's support is broad. Trump's support is deep. And I thought, yeah, well, that's, that's true. Well, that's kind that's of like the parties to too, which right. but maybe that's on steroids too. with... <laughs> The right. current right. administration, and yeah. yeah, and so I think if you if you're a Biden and you have broad support, you've got to count on having that broad support, and you yeah. can't you can't waste your time trying to deepen too much because then you might lose the breadth. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, it did seem like they um, they really. I felt like the story they wanted to tell. Um, the Democrats about Biden was so, so both so thinking about conventions as being in part sort of infomercials for the party and the candidate, um, you know, with like the pros and cons of of that as a thing, Um, you know, with Biden, they were trying to like, really tell the story of him as a decent person and an empathic person and a trustworthy person. Um, Whereas in with Trump, it was kind of like, you know, it was like there was a humanizing piece, but then, of course, there's some incongruence there with we want Trump to be seen as the I alone can fix things, as he said, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. without actually acknowledging that, you know, things are happening that people aren't happy about right now on his watch. Um, but at the, so it was a little bit incongruent. It was kind of like I'm I'm the strong guy, but then I'm a I'm a human, too. And <laughs> Um, And so I think that was a little bit of a harder thing to kind of land or to keep consistent. But I think like for that, that voter who's deeply attached to him, of course, that's not going to sway them. That incongruence, I doesn't, wouldn't bother that, that voter. Right. Yeah. I think the Republican approach was a little bit more scattershot, but I also think it needed to be. Um, so I think they also did what they needed to do. And in my opinion, they also needed to do three things. They needed to solidify mm-hmm. their base, turn out voters, and they were really counting on that. So they, they really <laughs> want to do that. Um, I think they also needed to reach out to some voters, probably like myself, who would consider themselves conservative, who are still registered Republicans or maybe independents um, who have had an affinity to the party, but who are wavering. And I think, um, I think with the, the base argument, you know, they can use a lot of the same arguments that they've been doing with the um, wary Republicans or independents. I think they, they, um, they probably were trying to do two things. They were trying to, um, sort of give them permission to stick with the Republicans. I think that was a big part of all the diversity you saw. I mean, this, I don't know, mm-hmm. but I would guess this was probably the most diverse representation in any of the Republican conventions. I was kind of surprised at just how many, um, especially black Americans they had. 
at the convention. I was surprised as far as mm-hmm. speakers go. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was very obvious that they were trying hard on that count. Um, and so I think that was probably to a large degree pointed at these sort of wavering Republicans, like, see, we're, we're trying to be diverse. We're reaching out, you know, like you, you have permission to stick with us kind of thing. I think that was part of it. And I think the, the other um, maybe darker side of it is that they were really also trying to scare people to say, oh, you might be tempted to leave, but it is going to be so bad under the other guy mm-hmm. that um, you shouldn't risk it. So I think mm-hmm. there were two almost opposite messages that are mm-hmm. were both aimed at people who are considering um, sort of leaving mm-hmm. the Republican tent. So I thought that was interesting. And then I guess I think the third um, is probably directed at people who um, who were maybe coming more from the Democratic side. And maybe they don't really think they convinced them to vote for Trump, but maybe they could convince them that Biden was bad enough that they shouldn't bother to vote at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I I felt like I saw some of that too, like especially with all the talk about um, the crime bill, the 94 crime bill, like mm-hmm. that's not um, that's not really a talking point that I think is going to convince many yeah. Republicans. That I and- think was really aimed at especially African-Americans, but, but aimed more at Democrats to say like, oh, Joe isn't, Joe isn't even worth your time, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And it's like, it's definitely like, like I, it, it's a def, definitely a difficult needle to thread because yeah. I don't even, I don't know that they really hang well to at all together, but at the same no, time, right. someone's a lower information voter, this idea that, that, you know, he was, the crime bill makes him, you know, um, you know, not worthy of your vote because that was too damaging. But flash forward, he's also, you know, a so-called like Trojan horse of, you know, um, defund the police and AOC is his puppet master and, you know, that kind of thing that came through in um, some of the speeches. So mm-hmm. that's, I think, I think there's a little bit of a, a counting on, like you said, people that maybe people would only catch the portions and hang on mm-hmm. to the thing that's most salient to them. Right. Um, so that they can kind of present all of that and still, you know, have this, or let's keep some of those wafflers in the fold. Let's right. you know, try to yeah. um, increase doubts amongst pe- amongst Democrats who are wavering too. Right. Right. Like, I mean, like I said, I, I really think it was scattershot on purpose because different arguments and different styles are going to resonate mm-hmm. with different people. And they were totally. probably just like, we got to We got to give it all out. <laughs> I think so. I mean, I, I read a, a, a take on um, Trump's speech this morning that was a bit, you know, in the in that um, vein of like he's just kind of like throwing it all against the wall to see what sticks. You know, it's right. his chance to like get it all out there, which yeah. you know speaks to the the length of it a bit too. Right. Um, and trying to make all of his closing arguments. Yeah. Yeah, I was listening to the 538 podcast here a little while ago, and they were talking about the speech, and they were unhappy with how poorly it was constructed, you know, (laughs) rambled, and it wasn't, it didn't follow a a very um, logical thread, maybe, Um, but I just think most people aren't going to care about that, you know, it's just, they're just going to hear the phrases um, that they're interested in, and Mm -hmm. a few things will stick out that they like, or they don't like, and I don't think most people are really going to be sort of evaluating it for its literary (laughs) yeah and some people and and some listeners too if you're the type of person who 
is very interested in listening to a to a speech, you're probably more so already um, leaning towards that candidate if you're listening to the whole right. of the speech. Right. And so it's not really going to change your mind, but someone who's just kind of like dipping in, you know, um, will hear what they want to hear or need to hear. And then maybe they'll go ahead and turn off the television. It's time for bed. It was late last night <laughs> when he wrapped right. up. Um, yeah. you know, and, I, and I do think like Biden got some um, part of his, I think, reviews um, that were characterized as he, um, you know, kind of exceeded our expectations were to do with the brevity of the speech in terms mm-hmm. of just if he's going to have a, a chance to capture these folks who aren't already interested in him. Um, you know, it's short. It's kind of compact and a bit punchy for him. And so mm-hmm. that might actually do a little work um, in that way. But in general, I think right. the speeches aren't, you know, at the end of the day, um, going to change a lot of people's voting decisions. Right. And I think they were all perfectly serviceable. I mean, um, I was actually pretty impressed on the Republican um, convention with, I mean, I just thought it all flowed well. It was appealing. That doesn't mean I agree with the content of everything that was said (laughs) or even most things that were said, but I thought they all did a decent job of being appealing. And um, that's, that's what the conventions are for. I mean, you, you had, you mentioned the term infomercial and that's Mm -hmm. another thing I I heard earlier and it's like, oh, that's true. I mean, that's another discussion that's been going on for years when it comes to the conventions, Mm -hmm. because there's this tug between, okay, is this really like a working meeting or is this an infomercial? And here it was just like, okay, let's just lay it all there. It's pretty much all infomercial. Yeah. All infomercial. And we are just going to be honest about it. (laughs) Yeah. I was nervous about, I was nervous about watching both both of the conventions um, because I tend to be just like personality wise, I tend to be not very compelled by the sort of, you know, heartstrings, you know, feel good kind of pieces, the set pieces mm-hmm. that they do for these. You know, I'm just a little a bit cynical about those, even if I like the candidate or if it's my own party, it just, that's not my hook. I really am the nerd who's more interested in the procedural piece of it um, uh-huh. or the dissect the speeches, you know, um, in that way. But I, um, so I was a little nervous about watching both of them. And then I was pleasantly surprised though, like you said, because of the kind of the quality that they mm-hmm. things hung together. And I do think like I was, if anything, it wasn't a quality thing, but so much, so much it was a decision-making thing about pacing that I think in both cases in different ways affected the experience in terms of some of the nights just feeling like more of a grind than others to get through because mm-hmm. it felt like either there wasn't enough of, um, I think in the case of the Republican convention, they had, I think, a bit more of a, a homogeneity between we're in this, we're giving speeches in this same place. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, they kind of mixed it up a lot more on the Democratic side. But at the same time, in terms of content, I think there were some portions of evenings where the theme was more evident. Their storytelling was a little tighter and it flowed. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. like, for example, the last night of um, the Democratic convention, Aside from the very standout piece of it, like let's really build up Joe Biden's uh, bona fides as a family man, like that really came through strongly. But leading mm-hmm. up to that, it felt a little like, oh, it seems like they're kind of like throwing in all the pieces they didn't get to, to, to yeah. use yet. So there are things like that, but I think that's the that kind of just shows the sort of we're experimenting with this right. this new medium, and it didn't 
bother me too much. The other thing that I I think might have been going on for the final night of the Democratic convention is I think there was probably a recognition by the campaign staff that a lot of people would only watch that last night. Mm -hmm. And so um, if there were themes that they wanted to get out at all during the convention, they had to make sure they were mentioned that night. Yeah. So I think it wasn't even necessarily just that they couldn't fit everything in the Mm -hmm. other nights. It was that they wanted to make sure they touched on all those themes that night in case that's the only that's yeah that's a really good observation yeah i didn't really think about it that way but for sure yeah i think there is this sort of um counting on or expectation that most people will tune in for the candidate um, yeah and i i felt i felt like and i could be wrong but i i felt like the republicans didn't as much do that i thought instead of trying to sort of summarize everything on the final night they made the final night like more intense than the other nights like I felt like Mm -hmm. the speakers last night were like I just I just kept saying to myself oh they're really going for it aren't they they're really going for (laughs) it like like I just thought that they were like more intense than the other nights but did you that's that that leads to a question I have for you did you when you did tune in at the time at the point in time on the first night of the Republican convention that you were able to tune in did you catch the speech, the earlier speeches that a lot of folks were characterizing as particularly shouty? Um, well, I, t- I caught I caught the Kimberly Guilfoyle one. And <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was very shouty, and I I yeah. was you know sort of leaning back in my seat like, whoa, she's doing a lot of yelling, and I I just don't quite get that. I felt yeah, I don't I don't know because I because mean, I, 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 I would agree. I think the intensity thematically on the final night was what you, what you're saying, but it was kind yeah. of like they, the some of the speakers, and I think Don Jr. as well. He was a little bit like, whoa, <laughs> um, true. had true. a lot of sugar or something. Yeah. And so, but I think, and it seemed like after that, there might have been an intentional like let's dial back the the volume or the pace. But then thematically, by the end, it seemed, yeah, like you were talking. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that there were like really passionate people every night. Sure. That's fine. I mean, that's part of the game. And I thought, I thought, you know, Donald Trump Jr. was exactly what I expected. (laughs) I thought the Kimberly Guilfoyle thing was a little strange. I thought it was almost an aberration, but I I almost, see, I think that would have been better suited to a big room with a lot of people in it. Yeah. To do it to an empty room is very. Yeah. It didn't work in an empty room. And I think somebody should have told her that it didn't come off well yeah it was yeah a little it came it was a bit unusual but I'm not yeah I, I also qualify that for myself where I'm not I'm not really familiar with her speaking style so no I'm and I'm not I mean I've heard her name I didn't even know what she looked like because I I get most of my news by reading or listening I don't actually watch yeah. much television so I didn't I, I wouldn't have known who she was <laughs> I, I did I know who I know who she is by her name but I just mm-hmm. I don't know much about her. So yeah, Um, I thought Tim Scott gave a very good speech. He was the only one. I mean, I know you always get up and coming people who appear at the conventions and you think, oh, what kind of a political future do they have? But he was the only one who in me lit a little spark and I thought, oh, I could see him going for a higher office. There was um, um, some characterizations of that, that particular night where, I guess it was the first night where, Mm-hmm. You know, this is, a, I think, a, a, a little bit of a dramatic reading, but I could see some, uh, yeah, I could see some of the um, evidence for this, that they were, there was sort of a positioning of the, the Guilfoyle style and Don Jr. style of approaching Republican issues. 
as a, you know, in contrast to the Nikki mm-hmm. Haley and the Tim Scott, mm-hmm. and sort of where is this party going to go post-Trump? Um, is it yeah. going to be a more in that, leaning back to the more traditional, what we think of as a traditional lane um, versus the more Trumpy lane? But um, That's true. I mean, I think, I think you can see it in at least many of the people on this program, some sort of glimmers or thoughts about what might be ahead and what what kinds of things the party is going to have to figure out as to who they want to be and what direction do they want to go in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For you as someone who, um, you know, has identified as a Republican and thinking about, you know, the potential directions, was there any evidence here in this convention um, for you that, you know, well, what would be the more, um, you know, immediate next steps in terms of the way that um, different uh, themes were featured or the way different speakers were prioritized? Right. Well, I thought I thought it was very clear. I I thought the answer is definitely the future is Trump. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. No, no question. But then again, I mean, conventions are always mm-hmm. in in the most modern times. They are always also a function yeah, of, of the campaign. The campaign. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, the Democratic convention was not just a meeting of Democrats. It was also a Biden campaign event. Mm-hmm. And just mm-hmm. like this was not, it was not just a meeting of Republicans. It was also a Trump campaign event. So it makes sense that it was all about Trump. But I definitely thought that um, even though, like I said, you could kind of see some little glimmers like with Tim Scott mm-hmm. about what else might be possible in the future. I thought it was very clear that the Republican Party sees Trumpism as its future. Yeah. yeah. I, I think when I, um, and, and coming at it from a different perspective, I think for me, a clue of that was the lack of adopting a new platform um, for yes, this year. Absolutely. And I, I was very if, surprised about that. Yeah. I, 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 I almost couldn't believe it when I heard that the Republican Party wasn't putting on a platform. I just thought, well, that's one of the two things you do at the convention. <laughs> you put out a cl- platform and you nominate a president. So I was, I was stunned, I have to admit. Yeah. I, I shouldn't have been stunned thinking about it. I guess it makes sense um, in how much the party has come to revolve a- around one person. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but I was surprised. All right, we're going to leave that conversation there for now. We'll pick it back up in our next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of More Than Politics. I hope you'll subscribe to it and that if you like it, you'll leave a rating or review so others can find it. I'd appreciate any shares too. Your help is the best way to let others know about the podcast. If you have ideas for topics you'd like me to cover or guests you'd like to hear from, please email me at julie.walsh.thesewells at gmail.com. My name is Julie Varner Walsh. I'm your host. You can learn more about me by checking out my blog at thesewallsblog.com and you can follow me on Instagram at Julie V. Walsh and Facebook at More Than Politics Podcast. This podcast's theme music is by purple-planet.com.